Hey everyone, my name is Katie Gregg and welcome to our project podcast. This is a space to learn about the latest in the developer community and talk shop with OSS experts in the industry. Hola, my name is Omar and I'll be your co-host. We're dedicated to the future of open source and want to bring you the latest in open source. In this episode today, in this conversation, we have Brian Fox, CTO of Sonatype, Adam Cazola, senior researcher, and Ilka Truin, field CTO. We are here to talk about Log4j, but before we jump into that, can you tell us all a little bit about who you are and what lens you're bringing to today's conversation? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, I'm Brian Fox, co-founder and CTO here. Uh, I um, have a long background in software development going all the way back to C, C++, uh, but uh, I spent a the majority of my career doing uh, Java-related things, um, most well-known for my work on Apache Maven, a lot of the, the popular plugins there. Um, and, uh, and at Sonatype, we've always been the maintainers and stewards of the Maven Central repository where the world gets their open source Java. And so um, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. I'll just go next. Yeah. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm Ilka. I'm the field CTO here at Sonatype. And um, uh, myself, I've, I've got a history in DevOps and uh, cloud adoption. I've, I've gonna spent the last decade working with uh, companies kind of implementing uh, CI/CD DevOps uh, type transformations. And recently, over the last uh, almost seven years now, uh, working to manage their supply chains. I, I take a perspective of how do you actually take the theory into practice? How do you put that into uh, production? And um, over the, over the years, I've, uh, we've uh, run through uh, many humps uh, trying to uh, get people to uh, uh, solve this problem. Great, great to have you on, Adam. I'm here more for a security perspective. Uh, my most of my career has basically been in, in security, doing kind of vulnerability assessments, both static and dynamic. Although I've been prior to Sonatype, haven't been exposed to the open source world as much. Uh, but yeah, I've been at Sonatype for six years now, and so uh, yeah. It's great to have all of you on today. So first off, let's just get into it, right? We've all heard about Log4j by now. It happened in December. And since it's been identified, you know, a lot's actually happened. So for those of us that don't know what Log4j is, can you provide the highlights as to um, what Log4j was? And then, to be honest, what's really been discovered since, you know, patches have been deployed for this vulnerability? Who wants to take this one? <laughs> yeah, I'll take. I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and take this one, uh, just at a high level. So, Log4j, you know, you could say it's probably one of the biggest um, things that happened in the um, uh, in the software engineering history industry uh, for at least uh, the last decade or so. It's probably one of the biggest security breaches. It's a it's a series of security vulnerabilities at this point. Originally, the very first one was called Log4Shell. Um, which affects an extremely popular component uh, called Log4j, which is why we call it just shorthanded to Log4j. Um, Log4j literally does what it says on the tin. Um, it, it it charts what an application says, like just like you know a ship has a captain's log. They, the captain kind of writes down events of what goes on in the ship. You know, today we threw uh, the first officer overboard. You know that sort of stuff. Uh, similarly, that's exactly what Log4j does uh, for software. So uh, it's extremely popular. Uh, almost every piece of software uh, that's distributed out there has uh, Log4j for, for or something very similar to it the, to do that function. It's a fairly standard thing to do. Um, and this uh, security vulnerability called Log4Shell uh, that was discovered 
therefore had a massive attack surface. In fact, Log4j is one of the most popular components uh, uh, out there for the Java world. I think it's in the top 0.03 percentile of the most popular components. So it's, it's, it's extremely popular everywhere. So when it came out, it was a big panic, you know, everybody uh, rushed out to uh, find where they're using it um, and uh, patch it. Um, from, uh, from uh, I believe that first uh, discovery was uh, December 10th when it was disclosed to the world. Since then, I believe there's been dozens and uh, at least a dozen of related CVEs or security vulnerabilities that have been discovered. So it's kind of been the gift that's been uh, uh, giving to the uh, security uh, industry. So yeah, that's, that's Log4J in summary. So, I mean, it seems like once Log4J happened, like everybody was scurrying, right? Like huge panic because this is so widely used in every enterprise almost out there, right? So we've since discovered some new findings, right? Where there's these new issues. So we kind of have seen from what I've heard from the development community is people are kind of stuck in a catch 22 right now with how to upgrade. So, you know, what are the options for people right now who are looking to upgrade that were on Log4j that was vulnerable? Well, there, there's a couple different, Log4j is, almost should be thought of as two separate projects if you want to think of it that way. There's Log4j1 and there's Log4j2. The vulnerability that kind of set the world on fire in December was largely a, a, a Log4j2 um, issue. And, and even then it's debatable if it was log4j or the jndi components underneath it um you know because the the part that was actually executing the code and and that everybody was were exploiting was actually uh, coming from the the, the java runtime uh, pieces of that and so it was a, effectively a dependency of log4j um, log4j version one has been officially end of life what five years now six seven years it's, it's been a while um and uh, so people that are on version one uh, may not have been affected by this same vulnerability. Um, but what's happened more recently, there have been some efforts to revive and fork uh, the version one uh, of Log4j. Um, and so the Apache project released several CVEs last week um, trying to uh, make everybody aware of uh, vulnerabilities that exist in, in Log4j v1, you know, because there was a lot of conversation around, well, we'll just stay on v1, we're safe. It's like, actually, there are some issues that are known. They weren't, uh, um, you know, filed or, or whatever uh, previously because the project was officially end of life. So that's why you see a handful of new disclosures coming out right now to make the general public aware that version one and forks of version one may have uh, some other issues, right? So staying on version one isn't exactly um, the perfect safe place to be either. Um, so there, there have been a lot of conversations in the community about what to do with that. Um, there is the reload 4J, which is a, a fork of version one. Um, trying to fix some of these things, uh, which ultimately prompted the release of these new CVEs. Um, the uh, Apache project is also thinking about uh, some API compatibility layers that might make it possible to move to the, the Log4j v2 runtime and still continue to use the, uh, the same API. Um, so it, it, it's not certain that that's going to happen, but there is a conversation about that um, because the popularity is so high, you know, and the, and the challenge in moving to another project like Reload4j 
is that um, the names and the coordinates of the project have changed. So if, if you're using Maven, for example, Maven doesn't understand that reload4j is a, is a replacement for log4j. So any place where the dependencies uh, refer to log4j, you might end up with both of them in your package. So users would have to go and do a bunch of uh, exclusions, as we call them, to tell Maven not to include that on the class path. Um, there may be issues uh, with the namespace of the packages of the classes themselves, right? So merely moving to a fork sounds easy in the code, but in practice, not so easy, right? Which is what um, I think is prompting the conversations about more API compatibility to, to do that upgrade. So um, with all these things, the devil's in the details, and I think the communities respectively are still trying to sort out what is the easiest path forward for the users. Can I ask Brian a question actually on that? Um, since that would be a big effort for people to move over to Reload4j, uh, is there any kind of commitment from the maintainer of Reload4j uh, that they're going to support it for any period of time? Yeah, yeah I believe um, uh, Cheeky is, um, I hope I get his name right. Uh, people can tell me if I'm, I'm mispronouncing it. Um, he was involved in the original Log4j uh, project um, and also the maintainer of Logback. Uh, which is another logging framework. Um, and um, so, yes, I, I, he's made the statement that this is intended to be not just a temporal sort of patching situation, but more of a, an ongoing project. But the fact remains, so much of the world's uh, dependencies are using log4j underneath the hood um, that, uh, that swapping that out will be a perpetual problem for people. Um, and so that's, that's part of the challenge. It's, it's easy in theory to create new releases, but when the coordinates underneath change and all the tooling doesn't recognize one thing as an as a in-place replacement for the other, that creates a real mess for, for people to unwind. I think it's interesting, Brian, you brought up that, you know, this particular piece of code was actually you know, it, 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 it hasn't been updated in like five years, it's been sunsetted. So is this something we typically see with, in the development community where people are actually running software that's unsupported or no longer supported by, you know, Apache or anyone else? Unfortunately, yes. I think uh, a big part of many of these things that we see uh, when there are security disclosures is that it's harder for people to upgrade um, because they haven't been upgrading forever, right? And so you see people on very old versions of software. Um, I mean, it, it doesn't just happen to open source. There are people still out there running critical systems on Windows 95, right? <laughs> and, and all the versions of Windows between now and whatever the latest supported is. This happens, right? And everybody says, oh, it works just fine, leave it alone, until something like this happens and then um, you know, you're not just tasked with updating one dependency, but you might be tasked with updating a whole bunch of them. Um, there are similar problems with, you know, finding yourself on outdated versions of Java itself. You know, moving to a later version, <clears throat> a newer version of a dependency might actually require you to move to a newer version of the runtime, which then may need other dependencies that have to have to change, right? So you end up you know, with what we used to call back in the Windows days, DLL hell, you end up with that kind of problem. And um, it's because of all these interrelationships, primarily because you've let your system get so out of date that you now have a giant pile of technical debt, right? And, and this, is, this is one of these problems we've been trying to help people with for, you know, a decade and a half to do a better job of 
of staying up to date on these things. Yeah, Brian, I mean, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's the philosophy usually in the back of people's mind is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the problem is, right, you know, you let it let it sit there, you let it decay, everything else kind of progresses onwards. There's like these sort of tactical decisions that people make uh, about, you know, updating their dependencies. Then something big like this comes into play, which, uh, you know, folks in the industry like to call a security by press release. Um, essentially, you know, it caused this sort of massive panic. And the reason why it's such a big fire drill is exactly, yeah, you're running on XP, you're running on old Java, you're running like code from 20 years ago with, you know, code, stuff that you haven't touched in ages. So you have to kind of relearn it yourself again. And then there's the cascade effect of everything that Brian just told, right? You know, it depends on other things that depends on other things. They're now updated. You're going to fix them so that the new stuff works as well. And before you know it, what was a simple drop-in operation, maybe a matter of a couple of minutes of upgrading, ends up being, you know, two weeks of project work. Adam, what are your thoughts from a security perspective on this? As far as, yeah, upgrading, yeah, I, I agree. I think we should probably pay a little more attention to, to upgrading. I know I've heard Brian use the phrase software ages like cheese, not wine. And uh, I think that that's... Milk, or, milk. Yeah, cheese that's, gets okay. Or sorry, sorry, cheese gets okay actually as well. Sorry, sorry, yeah. I love a stinky cheese. It, 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 they yeah. turn into stinky cheese if you wait long enough, but that's not what you wanted. <laughs> yeah, sorry, ages like yeah. milk, not wine, yes. But yeah, exactly, but that's, that's the point. Um, I think we do need to pay attention to it. We can't just assume, um, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like we, we can't make that assumption. Uh, there are vulnerabilities that are there that we're not aware of and people are gonna find them if we let it sit too long. So uh, we, do, we do need to upgrade. Um, I feel like it's often noisy yeah. though to, for developers to kind of figure out where to start on some of that stuff, just because there's so many different things going on and it's kind of a difficult decision to assess their exposure level. So, I mean, when you start those types of things, you know, looking to figure out your exposure plan, and, and really a plan to remediate. I mean, where would you even start with that to try and, you know, sift through all that noise? It, it is a challenge. It's why, you know, we've, we've taken care in our systems to allow uh, companies to kind of prioritize what's most important. Um, because at the end of the day, developers have to answer to all the parts of the business, right? It's easy if, 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 um, it's not easy, but it's easier if you imagine you, you are the legal team and you set out your rules around what licenses are allowed or not allowed based on whether the software is distributed or not. Okay, that seems pretty straightforward. And then you add in architectures constraints around what types of frameworks may or may not be used and what's compatible with them, um, the Java versions, things like that, right? That seems simple. And then the security team is sort of pushing on, well, use, use projects or use versions that don't have vulnerabilities in them. Okay, now at the end of the day, you're a developer, you have to solve a multivariable equation because you have to satisfy all of those things. It does no good to swap out a component um, that doesn't have a vulnerability to one that gets your company sued for copyright infringement. That's not really the business outcome that everybody wants. And so that's hard. Uh, we recognized that early on through the, the training and consulting that we did um, at the beginning of the company, you know, back in 2008, 2009, that this is what people were struggling with. So we, we've designed systems that will allow people to solve for it that way. Um, recognizing the developer has to be able to look at all of these things, can't walk around and ask five people for an opinion on a component. They don't have that kind of time. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it's a challenge. Um, I strongly believe it's also important to push that information to the teams working on the projects because they're the ones who are best able to assess 
the impact of a particular component um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of how deeply do we use that component, how much of the capabilities are we using, uh, what is the actual risk of updating this component, you know, do we have a good testing framework in place, is it going to change a, a bunch of my other dependencies. You know, I see so many still what I would call legacy behaviors of security by list. You know, everybody says, just, I just want the most important thing, and I'm going to tell everybody in my company to, to update this component. But that information misses all those things I just mentioned. You know, what happens if, if you, you mandate that a project update a particular component, and for whatever reason, they weren't really exploitable? You know, there's not all of these are super cut and dry. And now they've created six months worth of additional tech debt work. Is that the right business outcome? Sometimes it is. Many times it's not. But, you know, I, I feel like each application should be able to make those types of decisions when they're well informed. That's the part that's missing today. They're not informed. They can't make these reasoned decisions. And so then, you know, the the uh, the knee jerk reaction is, well, we'll just tell them what to do. But that doesn't help with the informing and making the reasoned decisions either. Yeah. And yeah, and it, it you know the kind of anti pattern that you see forming in in in, in places when when that sort of uh, thinking starts taking hold, is you know two things. First of all, usually it's a very underfunded security team that that mandates it, and part of the reason is you know there's like one security person for I don't know a hundred developers or something, right? So you can't really do much against that sort of uh, onslaught of of devs pushing code and what that kind of drives you the kind of behavior that it teaches people to live in is that security is an activity right it's a point check somewhere along the line you know either it's early or it's late and it kind of emits everything that brian just said right you know it emits the fact that it isn't just a security task it's actually a quality control task it's a legal task it's a uh, other things and you know what's good today you know the thing about the security vulnerabilities is everybody's always really surprised when they come out they're really big they're really bad it's a big dumpster fire gotta react now but these things come out all the time like you know if you drop like 0.1 uh, points of the severity those sort of vulnerabilities appear a lot more often they're almost as bad um take a little bit of extra effort but you, you don't hear about them and that's that's kind of i guess the learning of the last few years for us uh, in general, right, it has been has been you know a lot of places just don't have a process for that because they don't they don't have the muscle. Then it becomes this sort of fire drill, right? Um, and then you know to avoid that fire drill in the future, someone says never again. Says all right before you release, here's the game of fifty questions that you have to fulfill. And I for know from my own experience, uh, you find your way around it, you know, one way or the other, by hook or crook. Um, and uh, usually if something goes bad, you just apologize for it later and that's how you get away with it. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing a lot of analysis uh, of uh, upgrade behaviors. You know, we surfaced some of this on the OSS Index website last year for, for individual components. We call it the herd migration, right? Because absent, absent information about what the community of users is doing generally, people tend to land in one of two things. Either they only update when they have a good reason to, which leads to this massive piling up of tech debt. So it's the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Which we discussed why that's a problem. Um, to, you know, sort of the polar opposite, which is uh, update every version or update to N minus one. Um, there's a lot of work involved in, in updating that. You know, I think Google famously with the, the mono repo and, you know, across all their stuff have one set of dependencies. 
um, they're able to pull it off. Not every company is able to do that. And, and updating to every version, like I said, has a lot of work and can put you at risk. You know, some of, not some, most of the vulnerabilities that we've seen, the malicious attacks and things like that, especially in ecosystems like NPM, are happening because there is a sort of default behavior within that community and within the tooling to update to the latest all the time and only don't do that if I've told you not to, right? Which is kind of the opposite of Maven. Maven will keep using the same version until you tell it to, to, to update. Um, and so getting the bleeding edge is what the attackers expect the ecosystem to do. So it makes a sweet spot. If I can just get something into the repository, I instantly have millions of people downloading it before anybody knows that you know I've, I've put something nefarious in there. And so how do you solve for that? N minus one, N minus two, a week, two weeks, six weeks, a month, right? Like organizations have struggled for a long time trying to, trying to figure out how long is long enough to hold back. Um, and so what we've been able to do is look at the upgrade patterns and the, the, the usage and you can find clear delineations in the ecosystem. And we're trying to use that to help provide more intelligence, again, to the developers that can say, okay, you're, you're in the herd. You know, it's never safe to be the one out front. It's also not safe to be the one at the back that might be attacked by the wolves. But if you're somewhere in the middle, you're probably safe. But where's the herd, right? We can show you that now with some of the data, which will allow you to be a little bit more intelligent about when to do an update. So you don't have to grab every single version if they're just point releases that are fixing stuff that maybe doesn't apply to you or you don't need. Um, but when you start to get towards that tail end, you can you can get a warning that, hey, now's the time you might want to make a jump so that you stay in the middle of the herd and don't get left behind. Um, and it is very interesting, though, those charts, um, you know, maybe in the, the podcast notes, we can put a link to, to one of these examples so people can see it. Because when you look at it, it's very easy to see visually. It's a little bit harder to program recommendations around that. Um, but it is still, uh, it, it still shows, I think, the power of this concept. On that note, is there any way to inject security into the ecosystem as a whole? And do developers even want that? You know, well, we kind of did. Yeah, we, we <laughs> kind of did. Um, I'm not sure where you were going to go with that, Ilka. Why don't you go? Yeah, you know, I was, I was going to go and uh, mention the fact that, um, that um, you know, what, you know, there's kind of several ways of taking that question. The way I took it is is uh, can, can we kind of make open source um, more secure at source, right? You know, before you even download it in the first place, right? And, you know, there's several solutions of it, but we, we actually, you know, one of the kind of things that we do here is we run Maven Central. You know, Maven Central is something that we've been stewards of since its inception, um, you know, since, since it became a thing, right? So by default, when people download stuff for Java, like dependencies for Java or Java-based languages like Android or uh, Scala or, you know, using stuff like Gradle, usually they download it from Central. And uh, one of the things that we implemented before actually this Log4j thing, but it kind of drove some new emphasis on it, uh, was what we call it the Central Security Project, which essentially for every contributor that publishes dependencies into central um one of the things as a part of the publication process we actually do a security search and we provide them with security tools that they can use and it's it, it has honestly had a pretty decent uptick i think it kind of drives that sort of awareness upstream and it kind of helps them do that so i think i think that that's where i was going with it brian uh just to kind of mention that you know it is one domino in a long chain 
of things that need to happen but and you know not everybody's obviously picking up on it because it's voluntary i mean adam you you you're a senior security researcher right your team looks to hunt for this type of stuff i mean i'm sure you've had some you know thoughts on how we could do that or what people should be doing as best practices what are your what is your take on this yeah so i guess i want to comment first on uh, do developers want this um so i guess uh, sorry there's a quick answer uh a lot of it we do have. There's tooling already available, um, right, to to find vulnerabilities, uh, whether it's in your components, whether it's in your actual code that your developers are writing. Um, do and could we could we inject it earlier? Yes. Um, and do developers want it? Uh, I did want to touch on that because I don't think that's an easy answer. Uh, short answer: Yes, developers want it, but only if it is agreeable to them. Um, if there's some kind of tooling or something that they have to fight with, um, they're not going to want it, right? So. Um, I think they want it, but as long as it, you know, they they can it plays nicely with their workflow, right? Um, and it's not going to kind of impede their their development and um, you know maybe get the security team off their back. Uh, you know, if you can put it in their hands in a nice way to get the security team off their back, that's what they want. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, this starts to dovetail maybe into the White House meeting conversation that I know we had notes that that we were going to chat about, right? So there was a a meeting a couple weeks back uh, where they convened a, a lot of the leaders from from big companies and and some open source uh you know apache and and uh, red hat i think were were in attendance and you know it th this log for j uh sort of crisis has kind of uh reignited the conversation one that's been out there for a while you know around uh open source and and um you know bill of materials and things like that you know part of the knee-jerk reaction is always that people um you know feign or are actually shocked about how much uh, open source is in uh, commercial software. I mean, we've been sharing these statistics for well over a decade that about 90% of a modern application is composed of uh, open source, source your developers didn't write. That's why they can get stuff done so fast. Um, you know, that there is an element of building on the people that came before you, and that is a, a good thing generally. Um, you know, but there sometimes at times like this, there, there are these perceptions that all open source is written by amateurs and that they don't know what they're doing and that they don't care. Um, that's just categorically not true. You know, most of these popular open source projects that everybody uses, um, you know, are, are contributed to by employees of these large companies. Uh, some of them were internal projects before they were open sourced and forked to the, the world. You know, Google and Facebook and Microsoft uh, Red Hat have been doing that for years. Um, and so it's the same people working on open source projects that are writing that commercial code. These are not, you know, for the most part, just people who are dabbling. I mean, certainly there are elements of that. You will find small components like that. That's part of that, uh, you know, paying attention to the hygiene and making better choices about what projects you use. But the, the ones that are usually the critic, what people talk about is critical infrastructure, things like OpenSSL and, and Spring and, and uh, you know, a lot of these Apache projects are in fact written by professionals. So the knee-jerk reaction is, well, we need to help teach them to do a better job. That's not usually the case. Usually, you know, the, these, these bugs are found um, the responsible disclosure happens, they're fixed, they're turned around very quickly. What we've seen, the problem being, is that the users don't update. So you can make the software better in theory, you can make the turnaround faster better in theory,
But if nobody ever updates and they're running stuff that's 10 years old, how does any of that help the problem? And, and that's the frustrating part for me is that there's always that conversation of, well, we should just throw more money at it. Let's create a marketplace to pay people to work on it. Like that sounds like a recipe for a disaster. If, if you think that it's bad because you've got amateurs working on stuff now, which is, again, not correct. But if you assume that that's the case, at least they know the project. What happens when you pay a bunch of people who are only motivated to, to get the money to start throwing projects, throwing patches at projects that they're not familiar with? Like that's, that's kind of like the definition of insanity. That's probably going to make stuff worse, right? And, and it assumes that it takes money to motivate these maintainers to fix the things, which is just also not true, right? So the money and the focus really needs to be on helping or incenting or requiring, as in the case of the executive order, companies to start paying attention to their dependencies and disclosing them. I think that's the way this ultimately gets solved. I'd like to yeah add to that. So um, when we do our research and look at kind of GitHub projects that where people are opening up new issues against them, reporting vulnerabilities, um, oftentimes, you know, they can't get to it immediately, right? Um, like Brian, so Brian said they they are professional developers, but this project is not their full-time job, right? They have a full-time job. This is something they're doing in their free time, right? Um, just because it's interesting to them or it's useful to them and they want to share it with others. Um, so they don't have the time necessarily to jump on every every little fix. Uh, so I do see kind of the project manager is pushing back, you know, hey, you know, if, if this is so urgent to you, why don't you submit a fix? So uh, this kind of goes back to what Brian said too, like, I've seen people bring up that same throw money at it, right? Like, and I think GitHub even now does have like a donation link you can set up on your GitHub project, which is good. But again, that developer that, you know, it's not his full-time job, you can, you can throw more money at him. It's just more, it's, it's a time issue, right? He just doesn't have the time to, to, to do all the work. So throwing money at it doesn't solve that. Um, but what I think maybe could, and, and I'd love to hear anyone's thoughts on it, is uh, encourage encourage the developers that are asking for it um, and maybe get your company's buy-in on this. But if your developer is stuck and you can't move your 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 own code forward right, in your professional work um, uh, because you're relying on this vulnerable component, um, take your developer, pay your, your developer, just have him fix it and submit a pull request to it, right? Um, it seems like it's worth it. Yes, you're paying your developer to you know, write code for another project, but it's a project you're using and you're getting value out of for free. I mean, so yeah, like it's worth, and that way you get it fixed faster, then you can get the new build out faster. It seems like it's in the end more cost effective for you anyway to just pay your developer to submit the PR um, to the affected projects. And I think we should encourage that more, not just throw money at it. Donate your time instead um, to it, I think is what we should encourage. Yeah, no, I mean, you're absolutely like 100% agreed, Adam. Um, that's, that's exactly the issue. I think, you know, when you look at it from just the end user and adoption perspective, um, I think there's just a fundamental misunderstanding about open source. Every single license file of every single piece of open source that you download and adopt actually has a very big block uh, letter uh, capital kind of statement that says this provided software is provided as is without warranty uh, at this moment in time. And what that what that really means is that it is what it is. You adopt it at your own risk, and uh, and that you also accept and understand that uh, that's the decision that you make, because of um, you know kind of how we've built our systems, like move fast, break things, just 
you know, try stuff out because of the ease of adopting open source, which is, you know, by and large, a very, very good thing. Like we wouldn't have an Amazon, we wouldn't have Google, we wouldn't have Spotify, we wouldn't have any of these big companies if it wasn't for this sort of what I always call a secret, you know, silent industrial revolution in software programming. Like we moved away from typing basic and we started started moving into just filling the blanks, you know, just let other people smarter than you figure out the hard stuff. You fill in the blanks, which is kind of special to you. Uh, and that's why we're kind of in this sort of situation of 90%. Um, 90% of so software generally is third party to your organization. Um, the problem is most people just don't realize that that's the case. They, they don't even think about those external things as external things. They just think that they're part and parcel of whatever whatever you're using. So when you run into that sort of problem, that sometimes pressures, sometimes misunderstandings of that very basic fact that it is code that you're using without any warranty, without any guarantee, um, leads them to add pressures. You know, there are there is very real pressure on, on, on projects from their end users. You know, if you look at any popular uh, open source project and you look at the issues, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks asking for a lot of things um, you know, they're chasing for updates because this, the, it, it probably is very, very important for them. And it kind of emits the entire fact that there's probably not that many people behind that project. Log4j, for example, has free maintainers and is used by millions. It's one of the most popular open source projects out there. Um, so throwing, at the mon throwing money at the problem is probably actually going to make it worse because the maintainers are going to go, you know what, it's time for early retirement, <laughs> you know, if anything, right? Um, uh, and uh, and uh, it doesn't fundamentally solve the uh, fact that uh, the entire philosophy of open source was that, hey, if you see a problem, you don't need to ask permission. Just go and fix it, propose that fix back to the project. And somewhere along the line, we've kind of lost that. And I think it's a, it's a function of, you know, just mass adoption, right? You know, less people, less kind of idealistic. You know, this is what open source is supposed to be. And it kind of leads us into this sort of situation. It's, it's a tough place to be as a maintainer, because on the other hand, you do care about those problems. You do want to solve them. On the other hand, you can't clone yourself. And, you know, there there's only 24 hours a day and you kind of also have to do your day job. Uh, I do want to kind of add on to Kian on one point you said about kind of that, in, that inherent risk in open source. Uh, so some people I, I do hear, and there's truth to it, um, that uh, you know, open source software, because it is open source, the source code is readily available. People are looking at it. And so it tends to, you know, not be so risky, right? You know, people are looking at it and submitting patches, and which that does happen. Um, but I think we need to be careful. I, I don't think we want to trust it too much because yes, people are looking at it, but not entirely, right? Like if you if you have professional security researchers, um, you know, they're probably looking at you know whatever company hired them or whatever, or or there's bug bounty programs, right? And they're going after those, right? This is their profession, right? So maybe they're chasing after bug bounty programs. They they need some kind of financial reimbursement for what they're doing. So they're not looking at all these like just kind of free kind of projects, maybe some smaller projects. Um, they're, they're not getting looked at. Um, those might get looked at maybe in a more academic sense, like in academia, you know, you have kind of researchers there, um, you know, some, some university students. Um, so you might get it there, but usually from what I've seen is in that case too, they're, they're researching one very specific thing at that point, like a, a very specific type of vulnerability. And sure, maybe they may scan every GitHub project looking for that one type, but again, that's not very exhaustive, right? They're, they're not checking for everything. So um, while the source is readily available, people are looking at it. I don't think we should just assume that the entire code base of every single GitHub project or open source project is is being looked at. Like we don't want to take it that far. There's definitely an inherent risk still in, in using open source, and we just need to be aware of that. Um, no, no, and Adam, uh, you know, the, the other interesting thing about it is, 
Um, I ac actually always have an assumption that they probably know better than I do when I adopt something because, hey, you know, it's an open source project. It's got a readme, it's got a website, it's got PRs by people that I read about in books and heard about in conferences. So you're kind of naturally assuming that they they know what they're doing and, and you know, they're, they're kind of doing a good thing. Um, and then when there's a fault situation, your natural assumption is they'll probably figure it out in a, in a jiffy and, 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 and that'll be it, right? Um, and that's just not how people in general work. Like you can you can be a maintainer, you can be a superstar and still be completely blind or very slow at figuring out if it's kind of a new kind of problem as well, which is kind of another reason why, you know, I feel like people have a really high bar of uh, contributing to open source for, for no reason, because it kind of feels like, hey, these people surely must know what they're doing. And, you know, from a security perspective, you feel like, yeah, surely, surely it's checked out and surely it's good. The reality is maybe, maybe it's not. Maybe they're just really good Java programmers that have no idea about security whatsoever uh, altogether. And you might actually be a better person to give them that uh, statement than uh, they, they themselves. Yeah, actually, I had an example of that I could share real quick if you want, yeah, cool. a real world example. There was a, uh, th there was a project that I found a regular expression denial of service vulnerability in. It was a very long, complex expression. Uh, and when I reported it to the, the affected project, which was a very popular pr project, um, they had no, they didn't really, they needed to definitely some help fixing it. They, they did not know regular expressions that well. And, and when I actually looked into it too and kind of uh, researched it, kind of like when it got introduced into their code base and things like that, uh, they ultimately, because again, like regular expressions is hard, right? They actually just got the example and pulled that expression from a Stack Overflow article is where they got it from, right? So. Um, Right. So, uh, yeah, so they did help. They, they, you know, you know, didn't, didn't exactly know the project. You can't expect that the, the project maintainers are experts on everything, right? There, nobody is. So, uh, yeah, they could definitely use some outside help as well. Yeah. Okay. Back on this government sort of involvement, there's a sense of like defiance and doing new things. And that's, that's what I see from developers, right? They're always creating new things, they're real creative people. So is there any, sort of pushback from there being government involvement, just seeing that the White House has taken this super seriously? I don't think so. Um, I think there, there are conversations that are being had and the conversations are, um, you know, not harmful. It's raising, raising the, the bar on, um, you know, the focus and, and, and what is considered minimum due care, I think, is how this ultimately ends up uh, playing out, you know, there, there could be, you know, uh, an overreaction, you know, um, which could, could, you know, potentially kill an entire industry and, and all of that stuff. But that, that's probably unlikely. You know, I, I just think that um, some of the conversations, like I said before, get slanted more towards, you know, trying to solve the wrong part of the problem. Um, because it requires a deeper understanding of the nuances and the behaviors and the interplay between the producers and the consumers than, than you know, what, uh, what people who aren't familiar with the industry might expect is actually happening. Um, but at the moment, I think it's okay that there are the conversations. It's the same thing with the bill of materials. You know, the, those conversations have been going on. Um, you know, uh, certainly the government started leading an effort, the NTIA effort for SBOM, what, uh, in 2018, 2019, certainly pre-pandemic, it all kind of blends together <laughs> after that, um, you know, and, and it's 
just now starting to get to the point where companies are really asking about it. Certainly things like Log4j and SolarWinds and other things that have happened over the last year have, have driven that conversation ahead. Um, but these things take time. They take time to get right. Um, I'd be curious to, to hear from you all, because um, I hadn't had a chance to really think about it until you just asked that question. What problems would you see with kind of a government involvement in this? Because like just the minute that I had to think about it, um, you know, if they're, if they're just setting up regulations and things like that, of very, kind of forcing businesses to have some kind of minimum set of security controls, um, like for that, the only the only problem I would see um, would be maybe smaller businesses. They just don't have the the funding maybe to put these controls in place. And it's like I'm just a super small mom and pop business, right? Like, how do I, you know, why do I need to set all this up? Like, maybe that would be the best argument. I mean, the only thing I could see, which is, I don't think this is where the whole government thing is going anyway. Um, where I could see a lot of people having a problem, though, it would be if they're like, yes, we're going to set up this this group of experts and uh, all U.S. companies have to submit their source code to us and we're going to review all your code for you. Like, that would be bad. Right? <laughs> you don't want government involved that way, right? Like, that's definitely bad. But if they're just setting up kind of like a bare minimum, like, hey, you just business need to have this kind of minimum set of controls, um, do, do we see problems with that? I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, devil's in the details when it comes to this sort of work, right? You know, too little, and it can it can be as good as not doing anything at all, except you're now paying, you know, for advisors to tell you what's the what the little thing is to do, um, and and uh, you know, you're getting no tangible value out of it. You know, you could argue that PCI compliant in in some aspects is kind of like that, the older versions of PCI DSS. Um, where you're taking a bunch of boxes because you have to take a bunch of boxes and you know practically you don't you don't really get gain any benefit because mom and pop shops have to certify against PCI when they're using entirely third party software to do that. Um, I think the other aspect of this really is uh, is that um, you know when you look at you know the White House work that's happening, you know it's it's good that there's conversation about software bills and bills of materials specifically you know when you read through the executive order they kind of make mention of it but there's competing standards each of them have different uh slants you know there's a security focused standard there's a licensing focused standard so again you kind of land into the same thing uh, that um it's good to define that you need a software bill of materials but if you need a software bill of materials that only conveys licensing information or very rudimentary security information is that really useful for the purpose that you're trying to put it in i mean my personal take on it i mean this kind of gets us to that uh, you know the version of that that we have here in the uk which is a kind of cybersecurity regulation around supply chains in general which has a very very sort of a casual mention of of software supply chains that's kind of almost too generic it's kind of giving guilt to organizations about using third-party software without giving them any understanding of what the risks actually are like it's not third party that's the problem it's your ability to understand what what exact third parties you have and your ability to get rid of it when you need to that's the real problem right and so striking that balance of of legislation i think that's where the danger really lies is on the other hand you're you're causing people to do action without any re results. On the other hand, you're like you're writing legislation that's already outdated by the time that it actually comes out. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of a, out of time today. I mean, today's conversation has been wildly fascinating, and it's great um, discussion today, and just a variety of you know lenses that we put on these issues. And so I just wanted to ask for your final thoughts before we wrap this. Brian? Uh, 
users, consumers of open source need to start paying attention to what's in their software. There are tools that are out there. I think these uh, attacks have shown that um, ignoring it doesn't make the problem go away and it's going to be inconvenient for you to respond if you haven't been paying attention to those things uh, all along. Uh, so I, I think I'll, I'll leave with that. We covered a lot of ground today. Um, I think subsequent episodes will be interesting to see how uh, that conversation uh, adapts as whatever new and hot is coming out you know, at that time. Adam? I'll just say, yeah, the, the biggest thing for open source and security kind of combined is just getting that visibility and informing yourself, whether it's using tooling or otherwise. Um, I think that's kind of one of the bigger problems. I think people just don't know a lot of times. They're just missing information, don't have visibility, and I think that's kind of the, the biggest problem that we need to solve. Um, uh, there are people, too, that um, they just don't care about security, and I don't know that that I don't know how to solve a problem, right? Like I think kind of Ilka alluded to that a little bit too. With the if you just have um, like the, the the audit, just check a box kind of mentality, and some people just check a box. They don't actually care about security. They they have a tool that they don't even use. It, it's purposely misconfigured. They don't want to know what vulnerabilities they have. Like I don't know how to solve that problem, but um, for people that actually care about security, yeah, just figure out how to how to inform yourself, how to get visibility in, into you know your risk, uh, whether it's vulnerabilities or, or license risk or otherwise. Ilka, bring us home. All right. Well, um, I agree with every of the statement uh, by my honorable friends uh, before, who went before me. And the only other thing I'd, uh, I'd add to all of this is, is um, listen, open source is here to stay. Like, by and large, the reason why we have the businesses that we have today is because of all of these projects that are out there, you know, whether or not they're professional or otherwise. Um, they're here to stay, right? And the best thing we can really do is just dedicate some of your time, even if it's like 10 minutes, to appreciate them. So a uh, little bit of a hard pitch for you, but uh, we're going to designate uh, February 3rd of every year going forward as World Open Source Day. And actually, one of the things that we're going to do on our part is encourage every one of our employees, everybody that works with us to, to do exactly what I just said, right? Just spend 10 minutes, educate yourself, you know, spend some time, do it if you can contribute back even better um, because that's the way that we're going to get uh, get this stuff on the right track. Everybody needs to appreciate how much of it is out there, how much we use it and also show a little bit of our appreciation back to the projects because they really appreciate it too. So yeah, that's that's all I had. Well, Ilka, Brian, and Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Omar and I today about what's trending in open source. Um, stay tuned. In two weeks, we'll be back with another conversation.